So, uh, we are in a new venue. Um, it looks really nice. It's, we can still smell the paint fumes. Hopefully none of us will be high by the end of the service. Um, and being in a new venue, being in a new place, um, can give us a fresh perspective. Um, it can make us think of it differently. As Greg's already said, we will hopefully be encouraged. We'll hopefully be excited to be in this new venue. Um, you know, just a change of scenery. We've only moved about 100 meters in total, but a change of scenery and a change of position is probably going to change the way we think about church um, over the next few weeks. Um, and I hope it does. And I hope that that change continues. And so we're going to talk today about perspective. Now, I've got up a picture here. You've probably recognized this planet because you sat on it. Um, this is the planet Earth as seen from space. And when we talk about perspective, um, I came across an interesting article um, about an effect known as the overview effect. And this is something that is experienced by a very small number of people to ever have existed because it's experienced only by people who've been to space. Has anyone here been to space? Excellent. So I can say what I want and none of you will have any opinions to disprove me. Um, so the overview effect has been studied in numerous people over the years from different cultural backgrounds, different countries who've been into space, whether that's just in a space shuttle, whether that's to the space station or even to the moon. The overview effect basically gives people a very powerful sense of belonging and of longing towards Earth, their, their home. They see the Earth from a perspective that no one else in history, for the first few people who did this, have ever seen it. They see it against the backdrop of space, the long, cold, dark of space. And it gives them two main feelings. One is one of being connected to everyone. In some sense, from space, you can see everyone. The space station orbits the Earth at very high speed. In, in a very short amount of time, you've passed over the entire face of the Earth. So you've seen everyone on the planet. They also feel a deep sense of uh, fear and anxiety. Because they see that all these people they care about on Earth are protected from the vast coldness of space only by a thin layer of atmosphere. And when they return to Earth, most people have reported this feeling stays with them, maybe for the rest of their lives. It's such a powerful shift in perspective that it affects the way they act, the way they think, their emotions for the rest of their days. And so we can see from this that perspective, the perspective we have on something, is an incredibly powerful tool, and one that we might often not believe is affecting us. In our passage today, Jesus has met different groups of people with different perspectives on God. And different perspectives on God affect people in different ways. Some of these perspectives Jesus disagrees with, and Jesus has to correct. Other perspectives are the perspective that Jesus encourages in people. So what we're going to talk about is how perspective affects us and how having a wrong perspective on God can damage us. And then we're going to look at how to get a right perspective on God. Because obviously, if the wrong can damage us, the right thing is going to affect our lives in a really positive way. Now, in terms of wrong perspectives on God, oh, that's not come out well. Um, Jesus meets the Pharisees. Um, and the Pharisees were a religious group. Um, now, all these groups were religious, but the Pharisees were like really aggressively religious. The Pharisees prided themselves on being the Jews of Jews. They followed all the rules. They followed a large number of rules that didn't even actually get written down in the Old Testament. They'd been interpreted and added to over the years. Um, and the Pharisees looked down on anyone who didn't follow those rules. For that reason, the Pharisees were also at odds with the Roman Empire. At the time that Jesus was alive, the Roman Empire was uh, occupying uh, Israel. And they had taken over, they'd um, fought a really relatively small conflict, and they were imposing the will of the Roman Emperor on the Jewish people. And part of this was to pay taxes. 
And the Pharisees decided that they didn't like this. The Pharisees believed that the Messiah who was to come would be a warrior. Someone who was going to free the Jewish people from Roman occupation. And they'd seen Jesus. They'd been watching Jesus since he emerged. And they'd been watching to see whether he was this warrior who was going to free them. And at this point, they were growing a bit suspicious that he wasn't. And that was growing into a bit of disappointment and a bit of anger at Jesus, who didn't appear like he was going to raise a revolutionary army and overthrow the Romans. So in this case, the Pharisees come to him to uh, talk to him and to try and trap him into either being the revolutionary they want him to be um, or to losing his followers. And they ask a very simple question. Should we pay taxes to Rome? This is a simple question. It's got a yes or a no answer. But Jesus realizes that both answers are bad for him. If he says, yes, we should pay taxes to Rome, then all these people who are following him see, oh, he's just another Roman puppet. He's just someone who's in line with those people who are oppressing and occupying us. And so he's going to lose a lot of support. If he says, no, we shouldn't, the Pharisees are going to do one of two things. They're either going to say, yes, this is the revolution we've been starting. Let's raise up an army. Let's start fighting. Let's, let's kill people. Or they're going to use it to go to the Roman authorities and say, hey, this guy's saying we shouldn't pay taxes. Get him. So Jesus is in a bit of a bad situation. The Pharisees have a wrong perspective here. The Pharisees have decided that God is all about obeying the rules. That's all God is. A list of rules, a list of boxes to tick. And so they've come to Jesus to see which of the boxes he's going to check. Is he on their side or not their side? But Jesus gets to the heart of the issue because he asked one of them to take out a coin. Now, if I asked any of you to take out a coin, it would probably, assuming it was a coin you could use in a shop around here, it would have the head of the queen on it. And that's because, in the way our currency system works, all the money essentially belongs to the queen. You're given it, and you can keep it for a while, and then you're meant to give it back in small quantities, and that's tax. The same was true in the Roman Empire. Caesar, the emperor's face, was on all their currency. And it indicated that essentially the currency was Caesar's. So Jesus says this, you know, maybe tricky little thing, oh, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And at this point, you might think he's used a sort of politician or a lawyer's answer. Oh, you've not really answered the question. If he was on Jeremy Paxman, he'd be getting a dressing down. But actually, he's getting a deeper point because he then says, give to God what is God's. Now, this point he's making isn't saying, oh, also make sure you pay your tithes, because the Pharisees were very good at paying their tithes, often down to the exact percentage they needed to, and obviously no more. Instead, Jesus is pointing out that whilst Caesar's head is on currency, God's image is on everyone. In Genesis 1, it says that God made mankind in his image. Now, I don't know exactly what that means. Does that mean that God has two arms, two legs, slightly messy hair? But what it does mean is that the creator is visible in his creation, and that just applies to people. God didn't make trees in his image. God didn't make donkeys in his image, but he made mankind in his image. We are image bearers. When you look at people in this church, when you look at people out on the street, you're seeing something of God. And what the Pharisees had missed in their decision, in their perspective that God was just a rule enforcer, was that God had created people to reflect him. God had created people to care for each other in the way that they would care about him. And Jesus makes this point to them. And it doesn't exactly go down well with the Pharisees, but the people around are amazed. They see there's a deeper meaning in God's image. And the next group that Jesus meets are the Sadducees. Now, the Sadducees were traditionally opposed to the Pharisees. So you can imagine, oh, he's just, he's just dressed down the Pharisees. Maybe he's going to get on really well with the Sadducees. 
not going to happen. The Sadducees were a group who, as the Bible mentions, didn't believe in the resurrection. And that's why they were sad, you see? Um, it's blameless for that one, sorry. Um, and we're hopefully, we're not recording, are we? Oh, we are, aren't we? Um, so the Pharisees didn't believe in the resurrection. And that wasn't the only thing that set them apart. The Sadducees were, sorry, Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. That's not the only thing that set them apart. They were a group of intellectuals. They were a group of people who, whilst they were religious, you have to remember that at this time, most people were sort of religious. They thought they were smarter than everyone else. As a result, they loved the Romans. The Romans loved philosophy and debating. Um, and the Sadducees had actually set themselves up as the main mediator of Israel's relationship with Rome. So they wanted the Romans there. And they thought they were cleverer than everyone else. And that's why they didn't believe in the resurrection, because they decided that that didn't make sense. Their logical system couldn't fit the resurrection, so it mustn't be true. And that was their wrong perspective on God. They decide they're going to... Sorry, I'm totally forgetting to use the clicker. Um, and they're all in the wrong order anyway, so there we go. Um, <laughs> that's what happens when you try and translate them from one system to another. Anyway, um, so the um, Sadducees have this situation where they come up with a hypothetical scenario. Now, the hypothetical scenario they come up with isn't completely outlandish. Um, it comes from Deuteronomy 25, where the people of Israel were commanded that if someone dies... Um, and they're married, and they have a brother, that their brother should marry, if, if the brother's not already married, should marry their uh, wife, so she doesn't become a widow. Now, this was a pretty good system. It's not one we follow today. It's not one I think most of us would agree with, necessarily. But it was a system that was designed to make sure widows were not forgotten about, and not left destitute after their husband died. The Sadducees use this and twist it, because they come up with this slightly ridiculous hypothetical situation about the most unlucky woman in the world, who consecutively marries seven brothers, all of whom die. Um, I, I don't know what was happening, some sort of cholera outbreak or something. Uh, either way, she wasn't doing so well, but clearly she had a great immune system. Um, and they say, okay, ah, we've got you here. You say there's resurrection. But in the resurrection, who's she married to? Is she a serial bigamist because she's married to all seven of them? Or is she just married to the first one and the rest of them are a bit disappointed? And Jesus points out, they are badly mistaken. Now, why? Well, they didn't believe in the resurrection, so why are they asking this question? Well, they're trying to assert their intellectual superiority. They're not trying to find out an answer about the resurrection. They're not keen for knowledge. They're proving how clever they are. Have we met people like this? Have we met people who intimidate us from sharing our faith because of the fact that they seem smarter they can find the holes in our arguments. They can find things that we don't think about and take us down. Has that made us not want to share our faith with them? Not want to talk about what we believe in? They're too smart for us. I don't have all the answers. Well, Jesus doesn't answer their question. He doesn't bring out some clever logic about who's married to who. He points out that they do not understand resurrection. And in this case, he quotes Exodus 3. He says that God isn't a God of the dead, but of the living. And this refers to Moses, whom the Sadducees did respect. When he meets God, God says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He says, I am the God of those people. But at the time that Moses met them, all those people were dead. So how can he be the God of them if they're, if they're dead? He should have been, he was the God of them, not am. And this is because Jesus is referring to the resurrection, the time when all God's people will return. A time when there will be no dead and no living, but just God's people with him. And at that time, things like marriage, which are given to us as, as constructs to allow us to see a better reflection of God 
in this world won't exist anymore. And like, there's a whole thing I can go into about how marriage is a reflection of Christ in the church, but that would take way too long. And I'm already going to be going over time, sorry. Um, so he points out that they are mistaken because they have decided to discard the one thing that's essential for believing in God, the fact that they will be raised with God. They will get to meet God. They've, just, they've thrown it away in the pursuit of being so clever. Finally, he meets the teachers of the law, often referred to also as the scribes. Now, whilst the Pharisees loved ritual and following the rules, and the Sadducees loved knowledge and debating, the scribes were kind of the most underhand of all the groups Jesus was going to meet. The scribes had got themselves in a position of teaching other people what the law said. And weirdly, the law seemed to say a lot of things about giving money to the scribes. Suspicious, right? The scribes loved to be seen. They loved power, and they were greedy. It says they devoured. Jesus says they devoured widows' houses. He doesn't just say they took. They devoured them. Jesus paints them as a pack of hungry animals. And yet these are people who generally are respected in the society at the time. Now, Jesus has a bit of a different interaction with the scribes. Unlike the Sadducees and Pharisees, they don't come to him with a question. One of them kind of comes on his own and asks about the greatest commandment. And Jesus actually gets on with him. We'll return to him later. But then later on when he's preaching, sort of out of nowhere from what we see, Jesus just comes out with this diatribe against the scribes. Watch out for them. They make these prayers. They make these long prayers and they devour widows' houses. They're going to be severely punished. Where have the scribes gone wrong? Well, the scribes had used the Bible, used sorry, the Old Testament, their knowledge of the law to gain themselves. I'm forgetting with this. This just keeps pointing at me. It's quite helpful. There we go. Doesn't make sense anyway. Uh, <laughs> they were meant to all appear in a nice order and things. Um, so the scribes were uh, trying to use the law to make themselves powerful, make themselves most important people in society. And he talks about their lengthy prayers, and that can concern us a little bit. Um, let's do a hands up thing. Hands up who's ever made a lengthy prayer. Cool. You don't all need to automatically feel bad at this bit. Jesus is not having a go at anyone who makes a prayer more than about three sentences. It's not like your whole job of a Christian is being able to sum things up really well for God. Jesus is having a go at people who make lengthy prayers for show. Someone who decides, I know, I'm surrounded by other Christians, or maybe not other Christians, and I just want to show off how holy I am, how great I am, how great I must be to God. Now, there was a teacher um, of an evangelist called Martin Lloyd-Jones, uh, Jonas G. Campbell Morgan, who said, it's not even appearing, who said this. He said, when a man is away from his wife and the journey is short, the letters are short. The farther he is from his wife, the longer the letters become. Some people must be a long way from God because their prayers are so long. The point he's making here isn't that a long prayer is bad, but that if you are wittering on, if you are just going on with it, in order to try and show there's something there when there really isn't, you're lying to yourself and you're lying to God. If you're trying to make it out that you are more holy and more special and more blessed than people around you, then you're lying to other believers or non-believers as the case might be. The, far the scribes were in error because they decided that the law of God was there to make them look big, that they had been so blessed by God, that they must be special. They must be set apart. They must be better than everyone else. We can see this kind of teaching today. 
from some churches, maybe from some other religions, that say that there are a chosen few, a chosen few who are set apart and they should be revered above everyone else. They should be special. And we don't want to be like those people. We don't want to assume that the blessings we're given, the privileges we're given, were given to us because we deserved it. And therefore we can restrict them and keep them to ourselves and try and get more of it. We don't want to be like the scribes devouring widows' houses. right? That's the most vulnerable people in society. Give us your house because we need it. We know the law better than you. We know God better than you. God has put us in this position for a reason, clearly. So wrong perspectives. The Pharisees thought that God was just rules to follow. The Sadducees thought that there was no resurrection and that God was just a God of the living. Uh, Sorry, it was not a God of the dead anymore. And the scribes thought that God made them superior to other people and that they could take advantage of that. Now, again, we can say these people were wrong, but they were wrong because their wrong perspectives on God made them wrong. We might imagine that this all comes down to intellect and knowledge. If you're taught the right things, if you go through the right classes, you'll know the right things, but that's about it. It might affect you in a religious debate or a Bible study um, or trying to explain the gospel to someone. But does it actually change you as a person? Does it make you a bad person? Well, perspective has that effect. It can change your emotions. It can change your behavior. Um, Everyone's favorite privacy-loving company, Facebook, um, did a study a few years ago, uh, a rather unethical study, I would say, where they manipulated the newsfeed content of a couple of hundred thousand people. Um, Half of the people got a newsfeed full of births and engagements and photos of dogs and great news about celebrities and lottery winners. The other half got news about murders and war. People posting about how depressed they were that they'd lost their job, that other bad things were happening to them. And Facebook studied the responses of people in the posts that they subsequently made. It turned out that if you showed someone a lot of depressing stuff, they became depressed. And the posts that they would subsequently make on Facebook reflected this. Similarly, if you showed people lots of exciting things, they got more lively and more positive and would share more positive things on Facebook. I don't think we needed a multinational company to tell us that if you show someone depressing things, they get depressed. And I don't really feel it was fair of Facebook to do that to people without their consent. But it does show that perspectives that are placed in front of you, things that you look at and read day by day, have a deep impact on your character and your personality and how you handle your emotions. That means that we should be looking for the right things to expose ourselves to in order to make sure that our characters, our personality, our emotions go to the right places. And that can just be a general thing. I could just be advising you in general not to read too much negative stuff. Maybe that's helpful. But actually we're talking here about our perspectives on God. How is your perspective on God affecting the way you live your day-to-day life? Well, helpfully, Jesus doesn't just leave us with, don't do this, do something else. He talks to us about what we should do. He gives examples. He meets people and commends their behavior. So we're going to look at some of those things now with the right perspectives on God. The greatest commandment. This is... uh, an interaction with a scribe who actually does quite well in Jesus' mind. This scribe comes to Jesus and says, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus answers him, and this is uh, from Deuteronomy 6. He answers, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and all your strength. And then he uh, adds to that by talking about loving your neighbor as you love yourself. Now in this case, Jesus is referencing the Old Testament, but he's talking about what people need to do now. He's talking about caring for other people. And this goes back to the idea of being image bearers. If other people bear the image of God, as Jesus taught the Pharisees, then surely we need to care for them in the same way that we care for God. If we say we're caring for God, we're loving God, but we're not loving his creations, if we're not loving people who bear his image, are we really loving God? Or are we just following some rules? The way that Jesus explains that people show their love for God is in loving other people. They are intrinsically linked, as far as Jesus says here. And then the scribe responds, yes, this is clearly the most important thing. It's more important than burnt offerings. Now, burnt offering at the time was used to uh, atone for sin. The people of Israel were told to sacrifice food, uh, to sacrifice animals and food and burn them on an altar in the temple as a way to have atonement for their sins. But Jesus is now throwing that to the side a little bit. He's saying this is more important. We're going to see in a moment uh, why Jesus can say that this is more important. And at the end of this conversation, Jesus commends the scribe. He says, you are not far from the kingdom of God. So this attitude, this belief, this perspective that God is supreme and God is above everything else has earned this scribe a place. It said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. You're getting there. And then we have the widow's offering, that last little part at the end of the chapter. The widow's offering is a direct counterpoint to what Jesus has just said about the scribes who devour widows' houses. You've got widows' houses being devoured on one side, and on the other side, you've got a widow giving everything she has to God. The widow's offering is often used in church contexts, uh, in services that are to do with giving to the church, because it's essentially tr people use it to try and say, oh, that's okay. Even a small gift to God is really important. And that's great. And I think it's awesome that people should give anything they have to God, even if it's small. But actually, we need to look a bit deeper into the widow's offering before we use that too uh, easily in the sense of us giving to the church. Because the widow doesn't really give a small gift. The widow is specified in the text as giving two cents, um, which the original uh, Roman currency for this was a mitre, which is a great name for a currency. Um, and she gives two of them. And they're essentially two coins. They're the smallest denomination coins. In today's money, that would be about a dollar. She's given a dollar to the church. And one of the interesting points that I found in commentaries was questioning why did Mark mention that she gave two of these coins rather than just one of them? It wouldn't have really made a difference, right? It, it's a tiny, tiny amount of currency. One, two, ten, almost no difference in the value she gave. Well, it's specifying she gave two because two was probably everything she had. She had two. She could have given one. She could have just given one coin and no one would have judged her for that. She gave two. She gave everything. So this actually isn't a story about a small gift to God is really important. This is a story that says giving everything to God is really important. And that flows right back into the idea of being image bearers. If we're following God's greatest commandment, to love God with all your heart and soul, to love your neighbor, does it not follow then that we would give everything we have, everything in ourselves 
to God, we bear his image too. We need to give that back to God. So having a correct perspective on God means giving to God. And then we have to ask, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus to make all these pronouncements? Why do we follow these things he's saying? And Jesus addresses this in the passage as well. He talks and he says, David himself, this is in verse 36, I don't follow along. David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Now this is in reference to the fact that people had decided that the only way there could be a Messiah, a chosen one, was if they were David's son, of David's line. And that meant they would be human. Okay, David was human. So they would just have to be a, a man, just a man. Jesus calls us into question. He says, David said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Two lords in this case, with the Lord being Yahweh, the Israel name for God. The Lord said to my Lord, David was king of Israel, so who's his Lord? How can he have the Lord and my Lord? Well, this is referencing the fact that Jesus is also God. Jesus is not just a descendant from David, a son who is going to inherit David's throne and take Israel back to sort of the glory days of having a king and ruling. Jesus is something different. Jesus existed at the time David was king. Jesus existed before David was king. If Jesus is God, then he existed for all time. And yet here he is as a man preaching to people. This is why people were amazed at Jesus' teaching. Again, this wasn't just an Old Testament riddle that Jesus said how to solve. And this is the other important perspective we have to have. We have to have the perspective that Jesus was more than just a teacher or an advisor. He wasn't someone come to free Israel from Roman occupation, a revolutionary. He was the son of God. And that's why he could say these things. That's why he could say the most important commandment was more important than burnt offerings. Because Jesus knew that ultimately he was going to be offered for people's sins. In a few chapters, we're going to read that Jesus had a meal with his disciples. Following that, he went to the cross. We probably know this. Jesus went to the cross and he died. And he died as a sacrifice for people's sins, being sinless himself. The burnt offerings would no longer be required by the people of Israel because Jesus was going to be the offering for them. This is why he can say these commandments of loving God and your neighbor are more important than burnt offerings because he is now the burnt offering for everybody's sins. Not even doing it. Um, so. This is a fun, fun, fun production. Um, so, the right perspective is on God. That Jesus is God, and that God made us. In response, we should give everything we have to God. And we should know Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins. How do we get these right perspectives? Because I can stand up here, and I can talk, and I can click through the wrong slides. And that doesn't necessarily help people if all we do is walk out of the church and say, oh, that was a nice story. That was a nice little thing to hear. That was maybe helpful. It might, it might be feel good, warm, fuzzy feeling inside for the rest of the day, maybe the week. 
But then Monday morning comes and it's raining still. And you have to go to work or you have to get the kids up or the kids have got you up. Um, and everything sort of drifts away. How can we maintain this right perspective on God when so many things in the world seek to distract us? Well, one way is to read the Bible. Right? That's what we do each Sunday when we're here. We, we're reading the Bible. We're reading it with someone explaining it to us, but we are reading it together. It's what we want to be doing on our own at home. It's what we want to be doing with our families. It's what we want to be doing with our core groups or our missional communities. Because reading the Bible shows us who God is. And when we read the Bible, we need to ask questions of God as well. The scribe who asked a question in verse 34 was ultimately commended and told you're not far from the kingdom of God. How good must it have felt to be told that? You're not far from the kingdom of God. Wouldn't we all like that? Just someone to come down and go, hey, you're doing okay. The scribe gets this because he asked God a question. God doesn't mind being questioned. Jesus answers people's questions and he answers them from the place they need to be answered. If they're asking him a question to try and trap him, to trick him, to get him to stumble, he's going to give them both barrels. But if they ask him a question out of honest desire to know more about God, he's going to answer them and teach them more about God. When we read the Bible, we want to be asking God to reveal himself to us. We want to be asking for knowledge. When we read a passage that we don't understand or that doesn't fit with our worldview or doesn't fit with the things that we've been told somewhere else, we need to ask God to explain it to us. And beyond that, we need to do this in community. Right, we, can't just be, we can't just be people who are reading the Bible alone at home and secreting all that knowledge and all that experience away. We have to do this with other people because on our own, we're still prone to the little voice in our heads that says, oh, this bit must mean this other thing because that's how I feel about it right now. This passage can't say I shouldn't do that because I really like doing that. Reading the Bible in community with other people helps us focus as a community, as a church, as a gospel-formed family on mission with what God is teaching us for here and now in Chalton today. And I should just add, knowing about God, having this perspective on God, isn't like a sticking plaster for all your problems. The fact that you still have problems in your life, you still have days when you're down, you still have days when you struggle with your faith, with your anger, with temptations, with sadness, with guilt doesn't mean that you are far from the kingdom of God. It doesn't mean that you are like these scribes who are just making lengthy prayers for show and there's actually nothing inside. Jesus doesn't say that the widow's offering means she gets to live in a fancy house and have all the money given to her. Jesus does say that she'll be rewarded and that that reward is in heaven. Jesus says that this scribe is near to the kingdom. He doesn't say that, oh, great, you now get a horse. Um, sort of Oprah-style Jesus. Um, he simply says to people, you are near, you're there. And so I think he says to most people, keep going. Keep looking ahead to Christ. And one final way we can get perspective is in taking the Lord's Supper together. When Jesus knew that he was going to his death, he had a meal with his disciples he had a meal so that they could have a symbol to focus on. 
He ate and he broke bread and said, this is my body broken for you. And he poured wine and said, this is my blood spilled for you. And he said those things so that the disciples could keep doing that. A symbol, a sign, a reminder, something to look at. So they could look at these things, experience this feeling, and focus their minds on God. This isn't some sort of odd ritual that the Pharisees would have loved doing. This isn't, definitely isn't something that the intellectuals would really pride themselves on doing. But this is something that really focuses our minds and our perspective on God. I'm going to break the bread and pour the wine in a moment. Uh, after I finish preaching, Greg's going to come and play some more songs. Um, if you are believing in God today, if you want to focus your perspective on Jesus and want that to orient your life, I invite you to come up and take some bread, dip it in the wine, eat it, and think of these things that Jesus is saying. Now, if today that's not you, if you're looking at something else in your life, then please just sit and think and listen. We wouldn't want you to do something here that you don't believe in, that you actually aren't focusing on. But maybe if today is a time for you to come to God, a time for you to say, actually, my sights have been set on the wrong thing all along. I want them to be set on God. I want them to be set on this hope and on this resurrection, on this forgiveness. Then it's a time for you to come up and take this in front of people at church today. It's a sign for yourself. It's a sign for other people that this is what you want your life to be oriented around. So I'm going to pour those out now and then we'll pray. We want to all look to a time when Jesus will say that we are not far from the kingdom. Let's pray.